Uh-oh, new swaggy intro music. Welcome back, guys, to the Freshwater Bite Podcast. This is episode number eight. Let's do it. Are you guys digging that intro music? Oh, man, I love it. I'm going to keep this one around for a little while. Happy October, everybody. Welcome. It's October. It's 45 degrees outside. A chilly 45 degrees. And it feels like fall has officially arrived. Hopefully you guys are excited as I am, as these fish are going to be putting on some heavy feed bags in preparation for winter. Or if you're chasing whitetail right now with a bow, archery season officially opened here in Michigan on Monday, October 1st, and I'm excited to be chasing whitetail. Maybe uh, you were in the marsh looking to get into a little bit of waterfowl action. Whatever it is, I'm happy that you guys are here joining me as always. And today, for episode number eight, I have Jason Sankoviak. Jason is the owner and creator of the Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast and YouTube channel, Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast. And this guy is just full of a ton of knowledge when it comes to not only traditional bow hunting with the longbow, but also with a style of hunting that is gaining more and more popularity throughout the years, especially on public lands with the public land movement. And for all of us out there taking advantage of our beautiful public lands with this mobile style of hunting, where it's, you don't just sit in one spot and go to the same tree stand every day. You're mobile all the time. You carry your tree stand in and out with you. And uh, Jason is the man to do it. And he talks about how traditional bow hunting plays a huge factor into honing your skills. So let's get into it. Jason's a great dude. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for you guys to listen to this episode. Here we go. How's it going? Going good, man. Hey, Jason, thanks for uh, coming and doing the podcast today. Oh, looking forward to it. I'm excited for it. I'm actually, I was just browsing around on your site right now. I love it. Nice setup on there. Not bad, right? Us, us no, do it your, not at all. Us do it yourself, guys. You know, we're we're trying. Yeah, well, you're doing it good. Keep it, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> it's working for you. I like it. All right. So, listen, I'm calling you on the eve of a big day in the state of Michigan tomorrow. What are we? What, what's tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow? Uh, well, I'm waking up in a few hours here because it's gonna it's opening day of deer season. <laughs> well, and it's ar- archery season, so it's October first tomorrow um, in the state of Michigan, and uh, you know it's a big day for a lot of us hunters here in Michigan. I'm a big archery guy. Obviously, this is why I got you on the podcast today. You're a big archery guy, but you're a you're a very uh, niche uh, market in a in a type and style of hunting. Can you tell everybody uh, what you do? Um, uh, with the podcast, the name of your podcast, and the uh, specific style of hunting that you you, you do. Sure, it's uh, it's traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast. The website's TBW Podcast for short, but uh, traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast. And uh, that's for the last I want to say twenty five, twenty six years. I have not hunted with anything but uh, but a longbow recurve for the first few years, and then I switched over to a longbow, and that's been it ever since. So you've been so you've been doing this style of bow hunting for how long? Did you say twenty five years? Yep, twenty five years. 
And it, traditional bow hunting is, you said what's with a long bow. Does that include like recurves too, like anything but a compound? Yeah. I mean, traditional bow hunting is just basically your traditional bows, wood limbs, wood riser. You typically not using sight pins on it, that kind of thing. Um, but mainly recurves, long bows, and self bows fit into that category. Self bow being a bow that is made out of one continuous piece of wood where most of our recurves and long bows today, they're actually glued together with different laminations of wood and fiberglass and stuff like that. And what got you into this? Like why have you ever shot a compound bow or did you used to hunt with compound bows? I did, and that's actually why I got into it. It's kind of a funny story. I mean, you got to go you're, again. You're talking about in the, the late '80s and the very beginning of the '90s. It was '92 when I first I got my first uh, uh, recurve. But at the time uh, before that, my first compound was a Golden Eagle. I don't remember the model number, but it was a Golden Eagle bow, and it was incredible. And I shot it really well. I killed a deer with it three day, on the third day of the season, and my first time ever, you know, doing it. I I never had a, I, I bow hunted when I was 12 for a little bit. Uh, I did get a couple shots at a deer. I think the deer were 125, 150 yards away. My arrow made it 50 yards. Um, so it's not like I did any damage, but you know, when I was 12 and, uh, and then I got out of it and then, uh, I was shooting sporting clays at a range one time with a bunch of friends on a weekly basis and they had an archery ranger and I kept watching these guys shoot these bows. And I thought, man, that's so much more affordable. You can keep shooting the arrows over and over again. I don't got to buy shelves. And, uh, so I went and I bought that golden Eagle compound and uh that was in september and like i said a week and a half later i killed a deer with it uh and had a great time and then uh after then literally like two weeks after i killed that deer i sold that bow to get something bigger better and faster and they had a uh, browning ballistic mirage was the model i bought and i bought that bow and it had like this overdraw and i was shooting like 20 these little short almost like crossbow bolt size arrows with this overdraw this thing was like a speed demon and while I got it, I couldn't keep it tuned for nothing. Uh, the limb cracked. It had a crack in one of the limbs that they replaced. Got that done. I kept shooting. It couldn't get it to fly right. This thing was falling apart. Bolts coming loose, rattling all the time. Uh, so finally, I was in a Gander Mountain, and I saw a recurve, a Martin Mamba recurve. I still have that bow, actually. Um, but uh, I saw it hanging on a shelf, and it was right-handed. I'm a lefty. And I picked it up, and I started shooting a couple arrows out of it. And uh I, I loved it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. There's no no bells, no whistles, no releases, no sights, no nothing. It's just me and a bow, and I, I was hooked. So uh, right there on the spot, I had them order me one in left-handed, and uh, I had them put a rush on it, and it showed up and came, and uh, you know I got it, and then I that was it. From then, I was hooked. So I did shoot two recurves in, a, in about a month and a half long, or two compounds in about a month and a half long season, and then after that, I went straight to a traditional bow. And you've been there ever since. So that's just... What did you notice right off the bat from going from compound to traditional? Was it just the feel of it, like the 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 instinct, you know, instinctive feel of it, the instinctive shooting? Did you like that a lot better? Well, what I did like is uh, I was with that. Uh, golden eagle bow it literally took me like i mean within three days i was to the point where i was i was busting knocks like crazy hitting arrows and robin hood and arrows and i mean that bow shot incredible and i shot it really well and i was like okay this is cool and it was neat but i got really i got bored with shooting it fast i liked the hunting aspect but i got really really bored with shooting a bow you know i mean it was just there was just it, it, you know once you had it all set up it was just nothing else to do with it and i had pins all the way out to 50 yards not that i would have shot that far hunting but but I mean, just trying to challenge it and it just, uh, um, with the compound, it was, it, it got boring real quick for me as far as shooting. Okay. Once I shot that recurve, even right-handed, I just was hooked. And it's like with, with a traditional bow, you're never good enough. You're never going to be as good as 
you can be or as good as you want to be. So it just begs for you to shoot it again, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, and it's a lot yep. lighter, right? Probably for the most part, being out in, in the woods and tooling around and a lot less things for it to go wrong, too. Correct. Especially back then. Back then, you had to carry a toolbox with you, you know, to fix your bows. Now they're getting so much better. These bows, I mean, even the ones that my daughter and my wife shoot, they're, you know, they got these really hard walls on them. You know, they got, uh, I mean, they shoot good. They're ultra lightweight. Um, you know, they're, they're awesome compounds out there. The technology in them now is absolutely incredible even to the point where some of these bows out there uh, compound bows are not much heavier than than a recurve is you know right um so you know that aspect but uh you know it's uh, the challenge of a traditional bow is there it's it's a love-hate relationship on a lot of levels i mean it's uh it's just because somebody can shoot a traditional bow at a 3D target doesn't mean they're going to do well with it hunting. There's a lot of variables that come in in hunting, uh, and it can be, you know, it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of determination, a lot of practice, and a lot of mental aspect to pull it off. My first, uh, the first, it took me three years to kill a deer with a traditional bow, and in that three-year time, I had shot over the back of 12 deer, you know, before <laughs> I finally was able to get one. <laughs> yeah, but kudos for you for sticking with it. I think a lot of guys might have given up and went back to the compound bow, what was working, you know? Right. You know, and it, it, you're right. And I see that quite a bit, but, uh, one thing about a traditional bow is it's, it changes your whole mindset, especially today. Now, back then, the, you know, back then most compound guys were doing 25 yard max, even 30 yard max. Now you got guys that are shooting tremendous distances with compounds. Um, and, uh, but the, the, it, you know, so it wasn't a big deal then, but now when you walk in the woods with a traditional bow, you the mindset on how to scout for that and how to get yourself in that position is a whole different world. Like, uh, you, you, you know, I mean, you don't have the option of finding the right tree. It has to be the tree that is right there because a 10 yard distance, you, a 10 yard difference from one tree to the other, you may not be able to take a shot. You know, you're, you're looking at everything inside of 20 yards, 25, if you're really, really good. I mean, um, but our bows are going so slow that a 25 yard shot for us, gives that deer enough uh, reaction time to somebody shooting 40 yards with a compound, you know? So we got a lot of variables that come into play. And when you have that, your, your drive and determination to really outsmart that animal to on, on such a micro level to the point where you need him to walk right underneath you, you know, basically. And that's really hard to do. And that's the drive for it. It's not the bow. The bow is just a tool. Um, but it's when you get that mindset for being able to fine tune that close and you're willing to give up that 40 yard option and let them walk because you failed at getting them where you need to be inside of 20. That's the drive to it. Have you ever been in the tree stand and, had your you know had a nice buck or whatever you're after outside of bow range and have you ever thought of going back to a compound because it's happened so often or is it just like like you said no I'm going to learn from the experience and I know how I can get closer to that animal or where that animal's bedding and I need to pick a different tree Exactly the later. I don't ever, you know, I mean, there was probably times where I thought, I've definitely said before, oh, if I was using a compound, I could have killed that deer right. back in the beginning. But now, now if I, that happens to me, I want to, let me see here. Every season it's one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, about a hundred times. Okay. Um, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, when it does, the first thing I do, especially if it's a, if it's a whopper deer, I'm, I get down and I walk straight over there and I, I want to see why. I want to know where he came from. I want to know why he used it. And most of the time, 
as soon as I, I don't even have to get to exactly where he was. I can get halfway there and I can look at what's going on and I can see that he's using microtrans lines. Um, you know, he's using that, that little bit of interior cover that just makes a difference. If it's five little, you know, eight foot Christmas tree pine sized trees, they were right there spread out over a 30 yard period. They gave him just enough cover more than everything else did that he used it to his advantage or whatever it is. These little, uh, you know, micro transitions are usually what ends up being that. And I didn't, you know, that or I, I put myself on the sign. It was too much doe related when there's that parallel trail that's less used that I didn't pay enough attention to or realize that he just happened to be right on that. So, um, but you use it as a learning experience more than I do anything. Um, I don't think in the past, you know, I mean, it, it only takes about, about maybe one or two seasons for a traditional bow hunter to quick, quickly forget the fact that he's handicapped and not look at it anymore. Instead, you look at it as just a, you, you know, it's like a graduate class. It's like a mastermind course. It's, uh, you're in the big leagues as far as education part of it now. So you don't, you, you don't look at a, at a missed opportunity as a missed opportunity. You look at it as a learning opportunity. Yeah. And I think it, well, I think for one, just from, listening to what you've been saying and your YouTube videos and your podcast that I've been listening to, I think personally, this is my opinion. It makes you a better hunter at the end of the day. I mean, I know you might be, uh, you might, you know, not want to say that, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's going to make you a better hunter to put yourself within that, like you said, 10 to 20, 20 yard mark. And you're going to be so much more aware when you step into the woods of what's going on around you rather than, uh, I'm going to walk to a spot I know deer are over there. Hopefully they come by me and I can, you know, at, at least I can launch a 40 yard shot at them with my compound bow. But now you're more in tune with the woods, what's going on around you, uh, the deer sign, where they're sleeping, where their bedding areas are at. And uh, we're going to get more into that in a little bit because I want to ask you about your style of hunting. Um, what I mean by that is where and how you hunt. But uh, at the end of the day, it's going to make you a better hunter. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something that I'm interested in. And I also think that, it's kind of gaining popularity. If you're on the forums, um, some of my buddies are actually getting into it now as well. Uh, just because the pricing of compound bows are super high, you know, I mean, they're $1,600 for a brand new compound bow and that's, that's with nothing on it. No sights, nothing. That's bare bones when they can go and get a $400 bow, traditional bow or recurve bow and start shooting instinctively and get up and going a, a lot sooner. Correct. And I'll actually touch on both of those. First one, as far as it, um, you know, making you a better hunter, uh, it, I'm going to answer that in two parts. One, yes, every I, I promise you, the best hunters you'll ever find are traditional bow hunters, not because they want to be, because they have to be. Right now. I will also say in that too, that it's, we're, we're forced into becoming better hunters, but everybody, regardless of what weapon you're choosing on a, on a, uh, on a choice version, you can do the same thing. I mean, if you get into those spots and you tend to, you know, if you're willing to let that deer walk at 40 yards so that you can learn and then apply those tactics next time. And you start thinking as a traditional bow hunter has to think, um, you will extend your season. I, I will say this, if you do that, if you're willing to let some of those ones go that are inside your range, but they're out there too far and you extend that season and spend more time in the woods, you have no option except 
to become better. So that's the reason it, like you said, I do believe it. I a hundred percent believe that I, I of all my traditional friends that I know and people I hang out with, um, you know, every single year they have deer that are out of range that they have to let walk. That would, that would blow people's minds. You know, right. I mean, the caliber of some of these deer that we just can't get because they're passing by at 28 yards. We can't take a 28 yard shot. You know, I don't, nobody I hunt with would take a 28 yard shot with a, with a traditional bow. And, uh, and, and so you let them walk, you learn. And then a lot of these guys will turn around and get them, you know, uh, four days later, you know, or whatever the case is. I mean, it's, uh, so it, it is definitely a skill set that you can develop, but most people don't get it. Most modern hunters don't get to get it because of the fact that they're filling that tag quickly. And when they do, they're not, they're no longer in the woods doing it. And when you're not doing it or you're not challenging yourself with it, like we have to, you don't gain that knowledge. Right. Yeah. And as far as the price aspect, um, you are correct. Compounds have got ridiculous, but and, uh, traditional bows have not got ridiculous, but uh, um, they do vary. You can get a Samic Sage recurve for 139 bucks on Amazon and uh, or from any store. They sell them everywhere and you can get that bow and that bow will last the rest of your life if you want it to. Or you can go all the way up to, you know, thousand, fifteen hundred dollar custom bows. Actually, I would say long bows are usually a little cheaper because there's less uh, uh, time in making them and materials and stuff. But, you know, good, a you know, good custom long bow. Um, you can get into these things for, you know, right in the neighborhood of, you know, five, six, seven hundred bucks, you know, for a lot of these recurves, five, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred. So they're they're definitely less than some of the compounds and they will last you forever. There are people out there now that are shooting bows that were made in the fifties. Um, and they've been shooting the same bow every year since since the fifties, and that bow will never go out of style. It will never fail. It will never, you know, it will never fade out, it won't change. Right. And that's interesting. You said that your wife and your daughter are shooting compounds. Have they speak or have they uh, sparked an interest in uh, what dad's doing or no? Oh, they all do. Yeah. They, they shoot, um, traditional bows as well too, especially bow fishing. Um, they like them and, uh, Tina shot, you know, my wife, she shot, uh, traditional bows for a long time. And, uh, and then my daughter did for a year and a half period for hunting too. But the problem both of them face is they just don't have the time to practice too much, especially my daughter in school and taking college courses and working and all this stuff. She doesn't have the time to practice uh, every day like I do. So for her, um, they, she'd rather hunt with a compound, you know, and, and my wife's the same way. She just, you know, she's like, I don't have the time to practice all the time with that compound. I can practice, you know, uh, she, they pull them out mid August. They shoot it once a week, every week, all the way up till the season and make sure they're dialed in and good and ready. And that's all they got to do, you know? So for them, it's easier to go that route, but both of them have traditional bows and use them quite often and, uh, actually prefer them. They just realized that ethically, they don't have the, uh, the time available to practice to make it worthwhile for them to hunt with them right now. Well, that's great that they're self-aware to, to do that. You know, it, it's a certain way that they want to hunt. I'm sure, like you said, they want to hunt traditionally, but that they're, they're self-aware and they know enough to say, you know, I'm not going to be as lethal with that right now. Cause I can't put in the time. And so the compound is probably the safest way to go, which is, you know, anyway, I'm in favor of lethal kill of an animal anyway. So whatever makes it, more, uh, more lethal. But my other question was, um, now do you just hunt deer with this style, this traditional bow or do you, what else do you hunt with it? Uh, everything. everything. I mean, everything from okay. squirrels to ducks to bears to caribou to deer to you name it, whatever it is. I mean, I wouldn't hesitate if I was going to Africa and Cape Buffalo, I'd be bringing the same bow I'm using right now. Same thing. If you're going out West for elk, whatever it is. You would, yep. Okay. That's awesome, man. I love it. And I also, you know, I want to get into now the style of hunting that you do. And what I mean by that, not with the weapon 
because uh, we just we just covered that with what you use, but kind of that backcountry mobile style of hunting. Because after hanging out on your YouTube page for a while and listening to your podcast, I would say that's your forte, and you you just drop a ton of knowledge for anyone um, interested in learning about that style. Can you just tell everybody what that style of hunting is? You don't just go to a tree stand every day, set up, ready for you, waiting for you on on private ground. What do you do? Uh, well, you're right. It's, it's basically a mobile style of hunting, and it, it comes out of necessity, again, being a traditional bow hunter, uh, for the most part. I guess, I mean, there's a lot of traditional guys, too, that'll, that'll hunt from, you know, fixed base or positions and stands that got set preset and everything. But um, for me, being on public land, uh, 99% of what I actually now hundred percent of everything I do is on public land. It has been for the last, probably, I don't know, maybe five or eight years. Um, uh, but, um, and then it's always been public land in Michigan, but with, when you're on public land, you have to deal with a lot of other people and you're here in Michigan is two in two. So you understand also the massive amounts of pressure we have in the woods, you know, right. it's insane. And, uh, so you get, you, you go out there and if you were to hang a stand and set it up in that one spot, um, there's good odds that somebody's going to come through, even when you're not there and ruin it for you, that the place is just going to get ruined. You have to deal with other people that may be baiting around you that are going to change things. I personally don't bait hunt myself. Um, so I need to be able to be mobile to hunt, to change with the food sources, to have different options. Cause I also am a very firm believer that, um, once you go into a stand one time, whether you, you ruin it. Okay. When you, the first time you step on the, on the dirt around there, that stand site is ruined. You've just educated the deer. You may not even see deer. You might be wrapped up in uh, three layers of scent lock carrying four ozonics units and in a spacesuit with an air tank. And they're still going to know that you were there. Um, whether you see them or not. Cause like I said, most deer activity happens after dark and that's when they're going to come through. They're going to smell that you were there especially if you're in a stand where you have just massive amounts of dead skin that's microscopic, you can't see that's just falling off of you. I mean, to a deer's nose, it would look like a pile of snow underneath your tree of your dead skin. And uh, that deer is going to smell that. And they're going to know that that stand site where you were just at, you spent three hours at, that is a horrible place to be in a danger zone and they'll avoid it. So I don't want to, so my attitude is every time I walk into the woods, I need it to be the first time or the first time I should rephrase that. The first time a deer walks by where I am in the woods, I want to be there and ready to kill it. So going out there and hanging a stand a week before the season is a bad thing to do. Going out there and uh, scouting or going to going to check on your stand sites if they're pre-hung, going to look at them and see if they're active the day before and then hunt it is a bad thing to do. Uh, going out there and hanging a stand in the afternoon and then planning on being back there the next morning, that's a bad thing to do. My attitude is when I walk into that woods, I'm throwing a stand up and I'm hunting it and that's it. And then when I'm done, I'm coming right out and then I'm moving to a new spot. That way I always have them surprised. They don't ever get to the first time that deer walks through that area. I'm already there and ready to kill him if I want to kill him. So what kind of equipment do you need for this kind of style? So obviously you're packing in and out every single day, your stand and taking it with you at dark. So what, obviously you need like a, like kind of like a lone wolf, kind of like super light, ultra light stand to go in and out. Well, you don't have to have anything will work, you know, anything you're using. There are some pieces that I do believe are, you must have um, in there. But as far as tree stands, whatever you're comfortable with will work fine. Um, you know, I mean, you, steel ones are obviously going to be heavier. 
uh, but I would say that your best bet is going to be like a lone wolf stand is, is my favorite. They're, they're my absolute favorite stands. XOP stands are a, a very close second. Uh, they do save you a little bit of money and they, they are a great system as well too. But for me, the lone wolf, uh, uh, the assault model, the smaller one, comes in at like 10 pounds and uh, just nice and compact fits on my back and when I'm hunting swamps and going through dogwood and red brush and crap like that I'm not snagging it on everything so for me that stand fits really well um, I use a lone wolf sticks I only bring three of them because I put an aider on the bottom one which is a uh, strap it's a one inch tubing strap and I put a piece of rope in a, a little you know 12 inch section of rope to kind of hold a loop open in the bottom for a oh, step for me yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when I hang that first stick, now I can put that, you know, basically I hang it as high as I can. So actually the first real step on that stick is like right around like, you know, like nipple high or neck high. Okay. And because uh, that's as high as I can reach. And then I got that strap hanging down two feet below that. So I can then put my foot in that strap and then climb myself up onto that stick. So with three sticks, it lets me get up there, you know, 18, 19 feet if I need to. Usually I'm between... Uh, 14, 16, that's another thing not to get off on a tangent, but I think people will go too high. Um, compound guys with pinpoint precision can probably get away with that more, uh, cause you're shooting out there further. But when you're trying to make shots, you know, my favorite zone is going to be in that, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 yard zone is my favorite. If you start getting too high, you get too much of a risk of a one long hit, okay. uh, because your ankles get too steep. Right. So, you know, and so I, I feel that you only go as high as the cover needs to be. I would much rather be in a tree at 10 feet than I would have to be in a tree at 18 feet. But I have the option to get, uh, you know, those three sticks will let me um, get up, you know, even 20, 22 if I needed to with some cheater methods that are still safe because of some of the other gear we'll talk about. But uh, um, but realistically, as a normal person would climb, three sticks in that aider will let me get, you know, let me get up to 18 feet all day long, you know, and hunt from. So that's what I carry, three sticks and that lone wolf stand. I use the lone wolf sticks because they are the uh, lightest ones on the market right now. And they have a feature on them that uh, is the, the back uh, v bracket that actually connects to the tree on a lone wolf will pivot and so when you put that stick on there and you set it that pivots and takes its uh, own little path of least resistance and kind of bites where it needs to and it fits on trees that are crooked and cattywampus and it uh you know those sticks are incredible they let you hunt a lot of great trees as does the lone wolf stand too it'll let you hunt trees that lean forward lean backward lean left or lean right uh small diameter big diameter an xop will do the same kind of thing too they have this back wing on the back but those lone wolves that offset really well and it's just a very versatile system uh especially for a traditional bow hunter where again i cannot make it you know i mean a five yard difference from one from a from a crappy tree that i have to go up into to five yards away is a perfect beautiful oak with branches right where i need it i can't take that oak tree sometimes because it's too far away for me to shoot you know right right and then you know someone getting into this style of hunting so we've got the tree stand uh part down where, you know, you want to try to go as light as you can because the public land, I mean, it's really, it's really what you make of it. You can go a half mile in, you can go, you know, 150 yards in, you can go three miles in, depending on the size of the property that you're hunting. What do you see when you got started hunting mostly public land, what did you see most of the guys doing and how can you be more successful with this style of hunting when hunting public land? 
Well, um, again, multi-parter. Um, first off, too, um, don't overlook, like you said, you can go, you know, half mile in, you can go a mile, that kind of thing. You're right, you can. I have some stands that are, are actually over two miles in. They're brutal and they're all day sits when I get there and I only hunt them at certain times of the year because that's a long way in. Um, but the one thing that a lot of people overlook is keep in mind that the majority of hunters on public land are going to go somewhere between, they're going to go somewhere between, well, if, the, if it's a baiting state, they're going to be somewhere between 100 and 250 yards into the woods. If it's a non-baiting state, they're going to be somewhere between 250 and 600 yards in is about where most people are going to end up going. That's kind of that zone. And uh, now you got people that go both ways, some that are getting in further than that. Um, and I've been in, I've been in over a mile in some of these other states and I've run into people out there. So people today are not afraid to go in farther. We have GPS technology. They know they're not going to get lost. They don't have to have any woodsmanship skills. So people today go a lot of places, but the one place that you never see people that I love, um, and I'll, I'll bet at least half of the deer I kill in all, in all different states are in this zone is that basically that zero to, to 50 yards um, from the road. You would be amazed how many times I kill deer and I am literally, I mean, I, I'll have 10 cars drive down a power line. Not, well, I'm sorry, not a power line. I don't, I don't ever hunt actually on power lines, but like down a, uh, you know, a major dirt road. It's a road there and I'm literally 25 yards off that road and they can see me when stare at me as they drive by. Yeah. So the, the, a key spot too, that's often overlooked is that zero to 50 yards from the, from roads or from anything like that. Uh, the woods from people that are traveling at all different distances. And so those deer know that, like we said, if you, if they, if somebody walked there, those deer know that somebody was there and they know that it's a people area. Well, they, very few people are going to be 25 yards off of a road or 25 yards off of a power line or a two track or something. They want to go into the woods. Well, if you got heavy cover along a road, ditches, things like that, something that's uh, grown up pretty good. Um, you know, and you got to watch laws too. Cause I mean, I wouldn't be sitting on the side of I 75 or a major road or something like that but right. uh, these back roads things like that like i said most nobody ever hunts that they go in deep all the time you know they go they park their car in a parking lot and then they walk in trying to get away from everybody when uh you know you uh well yeah you're up up north but down there southern michigan where i i grew up at and start did a lot of hunting down there when i first got into it i mean i, I would kill deer literally where i could actually you know i was 30 yards from cars parked in a parking lot at holly recreation state you know game area and wow. i mean there, there's cars there and, and there's people sitting there talking in the parking lot and they're looking at me in a tree like I'm a complete idiot you can hear them <laughs> laughing and then they they grab their bag of carrots and throw it on their shoulder and they hike up into the woods and they go up there and hunt and a half hour later I kill a deer you know right there where they're at you know I'm, I was I mean the deer signs there there's no human traffic there other than the one little cut through the brush where they walk up into that area from the parking lot, the little trail where everybody goes. They all stay right on that trail. It's the only place that deer are going to encounter people and they know to watch for them. And yet I got all this massive sign scrapes and rubs and everything. And I'm 30 yards away from that parking lot. Nobody knows it. And like I said, I end up, you know, killing deer right there. Sweet and easy. So don't overlook the close stuff. Today, more and more people are diving deep and trying to get away from people and, and it's not a bad thing but the more people that go deep um and then you got your regular hunters that uh just hunt like every, they always have which is that you know that hundred yeah to a couple hundred yards in don't be afraid of hunting closer in i mean those, those you're looking for overlooked overlooked unpressured spots and those are going to be one or two places or one or three places one will be close to a road where nobody goes second one will be in deeper than everybody else goes if you can get that way 
Third one will be places where nobody else wants to go, whether it's marsh, swamp, water. You'll be amazed how three inches of water will stop somebody from walking through there. You right. know? So it's any of that kind of stuff, just somewhere where nobody else is going to go. Or another one that's overlooked a lot now, too, that's becoming a, a great spot that people don't realize is deer have become accustomed to being hunted from trees. So if you find places that have no trees that are worth putting a stand in, every time I check those spots, they are loaded down with deer. You know, they have more deer in those places because the deer know uh, that nobody is going to come in there and hang a stand. They don't even look at the place because they can't put a stand up in there. So those are hot spots too. Oh, wow. Do, do you think that there's a reason why, another reason why they're closer to the roads is because it's a familiar sound to them. They're used to those cars going by rather than, you know, someone going into the woods uh, half mile back making noises. Obviously that's going to alert them, but do they sometimes consider those like safe travel corridors almost if they hug that, you know, hundred to you know, 50 yards away from the roads? Uh, yes, but I think uh, I don't think it's the noise factor because they're not afraid of cars. You know, that stuff doesn't bother them. They're used to it every day. That's but what I, I mean. Like re- it's a familiar th- sound for them, you know. Right. Yeah, it doesn't bother them. But the one thing that does, the thing that, that what alerts deer to people and the problem with people is the, is the, is the smells. Okay. So and like I said, I mean, when we if you if it, you got squirrel hunters. You got hikers, you got nature watchers, bird watchers. You have, uh, uh, like I said, small game guys. You have coyote guys and, and uh, predator hunters that are out there at night that we never know about. You have whitetail hunters. You have people that are scouting. Uh, you have people out there recreating in the woods all the time. And every time one of those people put a foot down on the ground, that becomes a human area where deer are. And, and it'll take them. I mean, if you walk out there and walk through there, now those and yearlings and button bucks in a lot of places will let that stuff slide. Um, but generally, if you put a footprint on the ground, it's I mean, you can pretty much wherever that footprint touches or wherever you hang a stand at, in my opinion, it's going to be two weeks before it comes back to any good again. That's that's my thought, especially in the heavy, heavy pressured places like where I'm at in northern Michigan, where everybody comes up here for deer camp. Everybody comes up here all weekend to get away from the city. I mean, we have so many people here. It's just unreal. And when you're hunting areas that are that pressured. Um, it, it's insane what, you know, what it does to the deer. Right. And then those, those longer trips in that you do on the, the, the public land, what are the hours that you typically hunt? Are you still trying to get out there before daybreak, you know, a mile and a half back or a half mile back, or are you hunting those spots at, uh, uncommon hours, like maybe 10 to, you know, just before sunset? In my opinion, uh, every single hour of daylight is equally valuable. I don't believe mornings are better than evenings. I don't believe evenings are better than mornings, and I don't believe midday is worse than any other one. Um, And I don't care if it's rut or not rut or what it is. Um, I see a lot of stuff that happens in the woods, and and, um, I do look at things a little differently. One key time I think that is highly overlooked, it is one of the most valuable times to be in the woods, uh, especially this time where we're coming into early October. Uh, now, us here, me and you in Michigan, we got a cold front coming in tomorrow, which is going to be gold. Um, right. But normally, this time of year, you got hot days. It's not uncommon to have 70-plus you know, degree day, days in the 70-degree mark. Well, what happens that people don't realize is um, – when you have a, a day that's going to get up to a high of 70 degrees. So let's say wherever you live at your listeners being all over, if it's going to be a day that's going to be 10 or 15 degrees or 20 degrees above normal temperature, it's not going to hit that temperature 
until usually on average till about somewhere till like mid afternoon, sometime like one, two o'clock. It's actually going to hit that temperature high, literally much closer toward, you know, within only an hour or two of dark is when it actually hits. And uh, so in my opinion, on hot days, my favorite time to be in the woods is going to be somewhere between 10 and two o'clock. And it's weird that most people wouldn't think that because they say, oh, it's hot, deer don't move. You're never going to see a deer on a hot day. Well, they're out there all night where it's nice and cool and they're trying to extend that. So they stay out there more in the morning and they don't come back to bed until later on. And like I said, they can be out there at, at 11 or at noon. And if it's supposed to max out at 70 degrees, it might only be 55 degrees and it'll be two hours later before it hits 70 for literally for an hour and then starts to drop off again. So I find much better movement on hot days in the, you know, throughout the morning and mid afternoon than I do in the evenings. Wow. Another uncommon thing I think people overlook. I mean, that's, I I mean, I I mean, most of you guys, well, that's, that's why I'm asking you these questions because that traditional bow hunting style that you're talking about and being mobile on public lands, I think that you're accumulating a lot more um, non-typical knowledge or outside the 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 norm um, type of knowledge because you have to get within that that specific yardage of you know five to like you said no more than twenty. Twenty is your furthest shot that you you're willing to take. Yeah, exactly. And I also, I get to spend a, you know, a hundred plus days a year in the woods. So you get to see a lot of it and learn it firsthand and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you pass a lot of deer, you know, I mean, I, I've, you know, got a lot of deer under my belt, so I don't have to shoot every single one I see. And uh, so, you know, even you, you let a lot of animals go and you get to learn from them and watch them, but you're learning and watching from them literally while you are standing right on top of them. You know, I bounce acorns off their head and they sit there and look around like, what is going on? You know, um, <laughs> I mean, So you're right there to learn and gain all this knowledge. I've never had anybody teach me any of this as far as I didn't have my dad never hunted. You know, parents were divorced. I never had any of this stuff. It was all self-taught, but it is, I'm not going to lie. It's a, it was the fact of a traditional bow in the beginning for those first 10 years of me struggling with trying to get in to actually kill deer on a consistent basis. All of the things that you have to learn and you just keep accumulating. I, I learn stuff every single day I'm out there. But that's all, like I said, and it's, it's not only a traditional thing, it's just a, it's a discipline thing. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to be out there and put the time in, you can learn it, you know, but it does let you see a lot of unique things. Uh, another great example. Uh, I think the biggest waste of time that people do, and, and again, and if people do this, no offense, because I understand that's, that's the normal mentality of everybody, but that whole get in stand an hour before daylight, you bumped your head. I'm never doing it. I'm in stand uh, in the mornings and I hunt every single morning I can. Uh, but I don't, I'm, if, if it's, if legal shooting light is at 7am, I'm getting on stand at like 6.55. You know, there's okay. no reason for me to sit there in the dark early and let the woods calm down. Cause if there was a noise made in the woods, I screwed up. Cause when I come in, I'm coming in quieter than a, you know, than a baby mouse peeing on a cotton ball. You know, I don't <laughs> want them to even know I'm there. <laughs> right. So, um, so it's irrelevant for that. And a lot of the stands I hunt, I'm going in blind, even in the morning, I've never even been to this spot before in my life. And so it's a lot of times I'll have to stand there and wait for first light to kind of turn gray. So I can at least see to trim like a shooting lane or what tree is going to give me the best place to shoot through and give me the best shooting options where I don't have to walk around and trim anything. So a lot of times I'm standing there with my stand and my pack and everything on my back, waiting for light to just break so that I can see good enough to figure out what I want to do. Um, and, and you'll get a bigger picture than I can get with my headlamp. As soon as I can get that, I pick the tree and I shoot right up there and I set up. Other times 
I may go into a spot I've never been at blind before. I may not like it. And then I might have to wait for gray light to kick in for me to start scouting around from there. And it might, if it's legal light at 7 a.m., sometimes there's times I'm not getting on stand until 9 a.m. just because I couldn't find exactly where I wanted to go. I'll shoot up a tree at 9 a.m. and then I'll kill a deer at noon, you know. Um, so that whole, you know, the stuff that, you, that we're taught, we were taught by people trying to, to teach us things, which is not necessarily bad. But when you when you listen to what the deer do and you pay attention to what they're at and you uh, follow the number one, the only rule that matters is to be in the woods as much as you possibly can at any time you can. That's the key to everything. Okay. Well, I'm going to try out some of these tactics this year because I'm kind of doing that more style that – that that mobile hunting on public lands you know living up here i live in traverse city michigan i don't know anybody up here i don't have any family or anything like that um i've struck out a lot on the on the private hunting up here when i first got up here because that was just the mentality that i had from moving down state is you know try to get in good with a farmer or whatever it is but then i got onto the whole public land thing and i'm appreciating the public lands more and more and that style of hunting that um that you're doing is something that I've been studying now for over a year. And this is my first year where I'm really like going all in on it, kind of like what, what, what you've accumulated over the years. And I'm super excited to, uh, to dive into it. So some of these questions that I'm asking are actually more personal for me as well. Um, just because, you know, there's a lot of myths out there with like you, like we were talking about the times to get in the woods. It's like, what do you do when you go to that spot that you've never been to before? Um, you know, traditionally I'm used to going into, I know where the stand's at. I can go in there at pitch black with a, you know, with a flashlight and get there. Cause I know my route there, but, um, these other style of huntings, I noticed a lot of guys, like you have said, you know, they're, they're doing all day hunts or they're going in at times that makes sense where it's like, Hey, I know I can go there still at 9am and hunt until 5pm that night. And, uh, even if I'm out there at noon, um, it seems to be a, a time of the day where a lot of guys are being successful. Yep, for sure. Now, one thing I want to touch on before that, too, is if you're going to do this mobile stuff, um, when it comes, I mean, safety is huge for me. I mean, if we want to be out here hunting and doing this stuff, you got to, you know, obviously, if you're hunting from a tree stand, you got to wear safety lines or, you know, harnesses and all that kind of stuff. But um, when you're you're when you have a, a fixed position stand on private property or even on state land or whatever, but you put it up there before the season, a lot of people today are, are hooking up a lifeline. You know what a lifeline is? Yeah, yeah, like a lineman's line or something. Uh, line. Yeah, well, lifeline connects top of the tree, and then it's got the Prusik knot. You hook onto it from the bottom, and yeah, you yeah, the yeah. knot up with you. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. are fantastic for for most people. When you become a mobile hunter, you can't use that because by you, because you're going to go in order to get up to the tree to hang the lifeline. You know, you should be using a lineman belt or something like that first time you hang that stand. But since we're not going up and down and then coming back to it, we're just going up, hanging, hunting, and then bringing everything down with us. A lifeline is worthless to us. So a lineman belt is our key thing. Right. A lineman belt is one that goes from your hip to hip. Um, and it lets you have both of your hands free and it also keeps you connected to that tree. So you can hang the stand super quiet. You can put the sticks on really quiet. You're not going to leave any scent uh, because you're not, or well, not, not, you're not, I should rephrase that and say you're not working up a sweat. It's going to make you stink real bad right, uh, because gotcha. you're not hanging off the tree with a leg wrapped around it and, you know, straps in your mouth and fighting everything you can. You get both hands free with that lineman belt and it's going to keep you safe. But if you're a mobile hunter, 
and you're going to do, like I said, I mean, I'll hang over a hundred stands a year and uh, doing that, that puts me at very high odds of, of something going wrong and me falling. So it's very important in doing that. You're going to take safety to priority and you want to make sure you're using a good lineman belt. You use it for the second you leave the ground all the way up. And then, uh, you know, you get tethered in with your safety line from behind your back when you're in the stand. And, but that, that lineman belt is a mobile hunter's most important tool. Without that, you have no business mobile hunting. Make sure you got one. Cause, uh, it's the only thing that's going to keep you safe and coming home to your wife and kids. You know? Yeah. Which is number one priority. And you know, a lot of that stuff that I learned that lineman's belt, I actually learned from your YouTube channel and anyone listening, you've got to hang out on this guy's YouTube channel, the traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast. You just type that in on YouTube and he's got so many videos like this that'll keep you safe and like how to easily hang a tree stand and be mobile, uh, in the style of hunting as well. But getting back into one more thing, the obviously staying light and is super key. So anything that you carry into the woods, you want to try to be as light as possible because you're not going to break a sweat. It's going to be easier on you to hike in and out of the woods. Are you using more of that, um, Western style apparel and clothing? Because I've adapted to using like Kuyu, which is a brand that I really like. A lot of their stuff is super light. Is that something that you're starting to get into with, or do you see guys using it more in the Midwest in this style of hunting to, to have lighter clothing on and be more mobile. Yep. You do see more of it. And yes, I do on occasion. And when I say that, um, I'm still old school in the fact that I'm, I'm not a big fan of camel I, and not that camel is bad. I just know it doesn't work. It's camel is sold for people. You know, the patterns are designed to please our eyes. They have no business. They don't do anything for, for what a deer sees or what any animal sees. Um, no better than a, a, a plaid shirt's going to do. Um, and, uh, so as far as a camel, camel doesn't mean anything to me. So I often believe like even just now during my whole bear hunt, I, I wore the same thing, whatever I was outside the yard wearing and putting gas in the four wheeler in my regular everyday boots that I wear, my keen boots and my blue jeans and a t-shirt. That's how I went out and bear hunted. So I don't, uh, in, in during deer season too, I'm usually in a pair of green khakis or regular khaki, you know, regular Walmart or, or, you know, from Van Hoosen type, uh, regular pants and then, uh, regular shirts and stuff right out of my closets. What I wear most of the time. Now I do have a Kuyu vest. Um, I do have quite a few pieces of, of some of these high tech gear. Uh, the Kuyu vest stays in my pack all the time. And I wear it every time I'm on stand mainly because it's an ultra light vest vest. It's waterproof and quiet. Um, but it also keeps my straps from my harness from getting in the way of my draw, my bow. Um, oh, so okay. I put it on when I'm up there to keep everything nice and tight, and not, you know, so no chance of that stuff snagging. Um, and it does break me up. It's one of the Kuyu, the, I don't even know what they call it. It's their old military style, big blotchy camel. And I, I really like it. Um, but so for most of my hunting here around home, I'm in whatever I'm wearing. I don't have particular hunting boots. I don't have particular hunting clothes. I wear whatever I want. And uh, my wife gets mad because she knows don't wash any of my stuff and anything that's got UV brighter. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of how I do it here. But now when I go to, uh, for example, I go to Kansas. And when I'm out there and I got to go up and down these, you know, 10 and 15 foot, you know, undercut banks for all these cuts and draws and stuff where this water runs through a lot of these places. Um, I'm sliding up and down those on my butt, fighting through them, um, you know, climbing on my hands and knees for that kind of stuff. I, I definitely like some of those higher end clothes. I got sick of Timberline pants with the waterproof butt and knees. I love them. Uh, my rain gear is all first light and Kuyu stuff because I hunt in rain. I, 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 I love being out there in the rain. It's some of the best time to hunt and you got to have good, 
uh, rain gear is going to keep you dry and keep you moving and not sweat you out. So um, that kind of, and I got a few other Kuyu pieces. And I mean, like I said, I think that that gear definitely has a place. I do think that it's overused in the Midwest more often. I mean, I, it, nothing cracks me up more than seeing a guy dressed head to toe in $1,500 worth of camel, and then he throws a bag of shoulders over his shoulder and walks 30 yards into the woods in his ladder stand. You know, right, right. Um, it's, it's kind of pointless. It's, so it's a waste. It's more of a poser uh, kind of mentality and thinking that they're all that. They don't need it. But there are many, many benefits to it um, that I learn more and more. And, uh, you know, every time I buy a piece of that gear, I love it more and more. I mean, like I said, I uh, the Sitka Timberline pants were bought out of necessity because in Kansas, like I said, I'm sliding around on my butt up and down these banks. I'm short guy. And, you know, I'm fighting there. You're trying to climb down an undercut where you're literally, you know, no joke, holding onto a tree and swinging out and sliding off on your belly, you know, to get down. And uh, those pants just save you. And then I bone out a lot of my deer out of state. I bone them out, pack them out with me in one shot. So you're on your knees down there in the middle of the rain and you got blood coming down and you, you know, it's nice to have the waterproof knees when you're, when you're taking an animal apart in the field, you know? So these pants, um, you know, this gear, this clothing lines that are out there, Kuyu, Sitka, First Light. Uh, I know now there's some other ones out there too. Uh, there's something to be said for it. Mm-hmm. There is also some generic versions out there or not generic, but other ones that people don't realize most of these clothes are designed after uh, backpacking type clothing. Right. There's a lot of them out there like Zion Prana pants. Um, you know, there's a lot of great ones that are, if they don't want to spend the money on these high end um, hunting apparel, there's also some fantastic options in the backpacking world uh, for lightweight, quick drying, that kind of thing too. So, Okay. Yeah, that, that was, that's what I was getting really interested in. It seems like this style of hunting, a lot of guys are just wearing solids, whatever's light. Uh, like you said, a lot of mountain gear, things that dry quick because, you know, it's, it's a more active and mobile style of hunting, which is just like it is out West, you know, in the mountains. Yeah. And you're going to want a big backpack too. Cause one thing you'll find, especially, you know, any time of the year, doesn't matter if it's preseason rut or late season, um, make sure you, if you're mobile hunting, you're going to want a big bag on your pack, or you're going to want to have a lot of bungee cords for your stand. Cause you're going to find there's a lot of times uh, that you're going in, in, in very less clothing. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I pass somebody walking in the woods and I'm literally in a pair of boxers, t-shirt, and my boots, you know, everything else is in my pack, <laughs> you know, right. um, <laughs> and they look at you like you're crazy, but, um, but having that room in there to keep burrs off your, your shirts and off your thermal layers and everything, when you're walking through that stuff, it's nice to be able to put it in a pack. Are you seeing, this is just a general question. Are you seeing more hunters on public lands or are you starting to see less and less way more here in michigan because of the fact of the crossbows that have been legalized now um so you got a ton more here in michigan um and and that i see and then uh, when i hunt these other states there's a huge movement for public land and i see it uh, and i see a lot more people out there and it makes me happy it's a good thing as far as i'm concerned there's enough room for everybody and when you get creative you can learn how to work around them see if there's a like right now the big trend is for everybody to go deep go deep go deep that's what you always hear well thank god because i am tired of going deep so everybody (laughs) else go deep i'll stay close you know um so it's always a uh you know, there, there's a lot more people that are taking advantage of hunting land or hunting public land. Some of it may be due to the fact of how hard it is to get on private and the cost of leasing and stuff like that. But right. um, there's a lot of great people out there that have proven that you don't need to be on private land to kill decent deer. You know, they're out there. And the challenge of it is excellent. And the part I love the most is uh, 
you know, here where we are in Michigan, like I said, we're only about an hour and a half away from each other. We hunt a lot of the same kind of the country out here. And, uh, What's nice is, I mean, I can have, you know, it ain't, on my phone right now at any given time on my phone, I got 50 to 75 different stand sites that are, are spots that I don't have stand tongue in them, but I know are good and that I've actually scouted in the off season, things like that. But I can head into any one of these and these are covering over a 50 square mile area. You know, we have room to roam. I don't ever sit in the same stand two times or the same, you know, in the same 30 yard little circle. I'll never be in that same spot twice in a season. It just doesn't happen. I keep moving you know right like you said it make you a better hunter too because more people coming in, in the woods you're just going to have to adapt to the the changing trends in the woods and the public land movement and all that kind of stuff so um right. you ever encounter any bears up here yes um unfortunately none of them are, are coming in during daylight at my stand that i had or my bear bait that i have out there right now <laughs> they keep right. coming in in the dark <laughs> right. um but yeah but yeah i definitely see a couple of them every year but most of them are not during hunting i i've seen a couple in my whole life maybe maybe two to three where i've actually seen from stand that would act well one and so two i've seen two bears from a tree stand in my whole life um, while I was deer hunting. Uh, but when I see a ton of them is when I'm doing my spring scouting. I see them everywhere. I'm bumping them because I'm in the swamps. Right. Um, I'm in the nasty places, and they're coming out feeding on the grasses. And those are the first places those grasses grow. And, um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely seeing a ton of them in the spring. Do you carry any bear spray or anything with you when you're hunting in the fall or no? Going into no, all these public lands? No, I don't carry anything like that. If I, the only time I, uh, if, if even, you know, even though the gun with having a CPL, if I ever carry a gun, it's mainly because of people, you know, I, I don't right. worry about anything animal wise here in Michigan, the bears, you know, I mean, I, we got, we live here in the woods where we're at. We used to get them in the yard all the time. You just run out there and chase them and run them down and they take off and don't come back. So you kind of, you know, I'm not afraid of black bears or anything like that. Right. Okay. I've got a few questions from the listeners and then I'll let you go. Cause I know you got a lot of more packing to do and getting all ready for your big day tomorrow, but yep. all right. So the first question that came in from a listener was how long do you leave your bow strung up or do you break it down every time you go in and out? I, you have to break it down every time in and out. Well, not break it down. I have to unstring it. Okay. Unstring it, okay. Um, some bows, yeah, some bows get like three piece bows and stuff. They can actually be taken apart, but you have to unstring it or have it encased um, in a bow case. I don't use a bow case except for when I'm traveling out of state. I'm going to put it in a sock, you know, a bow sock and stick it in a PVC tube for travel purposes. But uh, rest of the time, you have to unstring it to bring it out, in the, you know, to put it in your car and drive with it. And then when you get to your stand site or to your, wherever you're parking at, you can restring it and take it out. Uh, it only takes a half a second to do that, so it's no big deal. Um, but other than during hunting season, Throughout the rest of the year, I don't ever unstring it. It's strong. It's always strong. I leave them. They're fiberglass bows. Um, if it's an all-wood self-bow, you want to unstring it all the time. You don't want to leave it string because it can take set. But with a fiberglass bow, like any modern recurve, longbow, any of these hybrids, any of that kind of stuff, um, you can leave them strung 100% of the time. I have bows hanging here that have been strung for six, seven, eight years and never had a problem. And I'll bet if you put them on a scale today, same weight they were when I bought them 10, 15 years ago. Huh. Okay. All right. Next question is how many grains of arrow weight, including the broadhead, are you packing and throwing at those deer? Uh, my arrows are 710 to 715 grains. Okay. And um, so they're heavy. As a traditional guy, we like heavy arrows for a couple of reasons. One is it makes the bow very quiet. Doesn't matter if you're compound or whatever it is, it's going to make the bow quiet. Um, 
yes, with your compounds, you're going to, you know, if, if you guys are used to shooting out there at bigger distances, 40, 50 yards, um, the extra weight is going to make it where it's going to, you're going to have to try yardage estimation a lot better. Uh, for those of us traditional guys that are shooting inside of 20 yards for everything, the difference between a 500 grain arrow and a 700 grain arrow as far as trajectory is about zero. You know, it, it makes no difference. So for us, uh, that heavyweight arrow is going to uh, hit harder, have better penetration. It's going to be quieter when it hits the shot, and it's going to be more forgiving on a million different levels, from deflections uh, to wind resistance to uh, all kinds of things. It's going to be a major benefit. So for a traditional guy, I recommend uh, shooting a heavier weight arrow. I shoot a 57-pound bow, and I'm shooting a 715-grain you know, arrow. Okay. And then what do you guys typically do in traditional bow hunting? Do you stick with like two blades or three blades on your broadheads? Uh, you can go with any. They got two, three, four. You know, I mean, and, you, and a lot of guys, until you learn what you're doing and learn how to sharpen these, these uh, traditional heads are usually something you sharpen yourself. Right. And until you get good enough to do that, uh, there's nothing wrong with taking a thunderhead or something like that or, a, you know, a muzzy and putting it, you know, a regular standard replaceable blade broadhead and putting it right on the end of your arrow. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all because you want that razor sharp head. Uh, blade preference or, or how many blades, that's all a personal preference. Okay. I personally shoot strictly two blades and uh, I do it for one reason and one reason only and that is because they are so it's, – it's quicker for me to sharpen two blades than three and a lot easier for me to do it. I fit more arrows in the hood of my quiver with two blades than I do if I got three of them in it, three blades on an arrow. So for me, uh, I, I'm a diehard two-blade fan. I, I've, I haven't shot a three-blade broadhead in years, okay. probably 20 years. And then with so, so since you have a heavier arrow and silences the bow a little bit more, are you still using string silencers on your traditional bow? I do. Um, I, they're not necessary, and but we do. Um, just mainly because you still, I mean, not so much that it's loud, but you, if you don't, you still get just a twitch of a twing, uh, almost like, you know, a strong guitar string, that little bit of vibration, uh, and I don't like it, so I do use silencers on there still. But it, it definitely, it's nice and quiet. It's a pretty rare day that, um, I don't want to say that the deer aren't going to hear it, because on a quiet morning, you know, they're, they're going to hear that bolt, you know what I mean? But it's not so quite alarming. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot quieter than a lot of things are out there. Okay. And then, okay. And you said one last question, which I know you already answered your furthest comfortable shot ethically is 20 to 25 yards. Yeah. I'll bet, uh, if I've killed a hundred animals, I'll bet less than five of them have been beyond 25 yards and I'll bet less than 15 of them have been beyond 20. Okay. Yeah, I want them in close. My my sweet spot, um, when I climb up a tree, I'm climbing up that tree going, okay, I'm, my majority of my, my shooting, I'm hoping, is going to be 15 and under. So, and you don't want them too close because, like I said, then you get a one long right. hit. So yep. I like that. I like that, you know, that 7 to 15-yard range is, is my sweet spot. Um, but I'm not going to lie, I, I've missed a, quite a handful of deer in that zone as well, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter what you have in your hand because – eventually you might succumb to that thing called buck fever. And at that point, all bets are off. Well, with a traditional bow, you also have the, uh, um, you know, with a, with a compound crossbow gun, any modern weapon, you have a sighting system, you have a release system, you have a let off system on a compound. So you're not holding the full weight. You have all these, uh, these check systems that are put in, in there to make sure that your, that your whole functioning system works really good. On a traditional bow, it is a stick and a string, and it's all your muscle and your brain power that does it. And uh, that works great on a range. But like I said, you get up in a tree stand and start twisting in weird positions and, uh, you know, trying to do this. It, it, it's, it's a lot of mental challenge to it. There's, I'm not going to lie. There's been a few times I've thrown that bow out of that tree that I've had to look for an hour to find it, you know. 
<laughs> well, dude, this is a you know, this is something I think that um, even as a compound hunter, you know, if, if one day, which I hope to get better and better at uh, this mobile style of public land hunting, you know, it's always cool to know that like if I want to up my my skill levels or, you know, do something that's a little bit more like you like you're doing traditional and more uh, more feel, if that makes sense to anybody listening, you know, you, you're feeling the yourself pull the bow back here. It's a lot of instinct shooting. Um, it's cool. Something like this that we can always better ourselves in the woods and as outdoorsmen to uh, to take up this style of hunting. Yeah, I would say I would say the most important thing, the biggest takeaway from it um, that I could offer basically would be that, you know, for people that when you're out there and you're heading out in the woods, it's, it's like, it's, it's the same chasing deer is the same thing as chasing money. When you get desperate and you start chasing money, you're never going to make it. And nobody's going to give it to you because they know you're desperate. Deer hunting is the same way. If you're out there to try and kill a deer, put it on Facebook and show your friends how cool you are. That's where you're losing everything. Yeah. If you go out there with the attitude of having fun, learning something new every day and absorbing the value of what you get and the fact that you have, you, you can be out there doing this and you absorb it all like a sponge, the success will come and it will come very quickly because you are now not desperately chasing deer. You're learning from the deer and adapting with them and understanding them more. And it doesn't matter what animal it is. It doesn't matter if you're a waterfowl or a squirrel hunter, doesn't matter any of it. It's just, it's all in the, the mental attitude. Just go out there and have fun and quit worrying about killing something and start learning about them. You know, that's, that's where the difference comes into play. I agree. And I think people can learn to love the process a little bit more. And at the end of the day, that's the real valuable part is what you learned. Right. We live in a society where they just, all they want to do is just get out there as quick as they can, kill the biggest deer they can, take a picture of it on Facebook and then move on with their life. And that's not learning anything. You know, I mean, the woods is not a place for that. It's not a place for cell phones, emails. It's a place to slow down, reconnect with yourself and enjoy a little quality time and learn from what's going on around you. I agree a thousand percent. Well, Jason, where can people find out more about what you're doing? Um, Where's the best spot to follow you at? Uh, would be the podcast is uh, the podcast site, which is tbwpodcast.com, short for Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast. Um, on that tbwpodcast.com, that's where I put everything at. Uh, all the videos are linked on there. They're also from, you can find them on YouTube as well too. Traditional bow hunting wilderness podcast on YouTube, but they go, once I load them on YouTube, I also put them on that website. All my podcast episodes are on that website. So that's kind of where you find everything. Okay. Awesome. And anybody who's listening, I highly suggest to go to that YouTube page. His videos are amazing. It's step-by-step stuff. It's product reviews, how to sharpen broadheads, safety harnesses, hang tree stands, uh, how to use a GPS and why to use a GPS. I mean, there's just so much good content on there. And Jason, thanks. I can't thank you enough, man, for coming by today and sharing everything that you do. And uh, I hope to have you on the podcast again some other time. I appreciate it. And good job with what you're doing with that podcast. Like I said, I love the site, love the podcast. It's got, I can see you're going to go big places with this and it's uh, going to be a worth, you know, worth a, a lot of information for a lot of great people out there. They're going to get a lot from you. So good job. And I know the amount of time and energy it takes for you to do it is a huge commitment. So uh, I appreciate it and keep it up and keep going. Cause like I said, there's a lot of people that are going to benefit from it. Well, I really appreciate it, man. And uh, Hey, good luck tomorrow and this, the entire season. You too. We'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. I cannot stress enough for you guys to go to the traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast on YouTube. Go to Jason's site there on YouTube and you will learn so much information. Even even if you're hunting with a compound bow or if you're hunting with, 
even a, a gun, right? Some of the tactics that he has of just being in the woods, of getting in and out of the woods and finding deer and the equipment that you might need, you're going to learn something. You're going to walk away and hopefully be a better hunting. And, you know, I really believe if you listen to, to guys like Jason who, who have to get closer to the deer, who have so many more factors that, you know, traditional bow style brings to the table, you're, you're going to be a better hunter because of it. And Jason's, Jason's just a man. What else can I say? Okay, so moving forward, I'm probably going to get back into some fall fishing stuff. Um, get some ice fishing things going here, believe it or not. It's around the corner. I take off to go fish some Lax this week in Minnesota, which I'm pumped about that. So maybe I can uh, come back and do a little podcast of, of how my experience was there. I just really appreciate you guys um, supporting the podcast. Uh, follow me on Instagram. I'll leave the show in the show notes below. I'll, I'll provide a link to my Instagram account for you guys to get the, the up-to-date podcast of uh, when they're coming out and, um, you know, what guests I'm going to have on. And it's a great way to DM me some questions as well. So thank you guys for listening and everything you do. Enjoy the fall, everybody.